Welcome to Emerging, the official podcast of the Trout Unlimited and Costa Five Rivers program presented by Sims. Emerging is about enabling the young angling community to drive progress in the fly fishing industry and the conservation of the places we love to fish. My name is Joseph Burney. I'm the current Five Rivers Communications intern and will be your host along with Andrew Lafredo. For this episode, we sat down with some of our friends up at TU Alaska to talk about Pebble Mine, Public Lands, and the Five Rivers Odyssey. We hope you enjoy. Eric, Megan, Andrew, welcome to Emerging. So excited to uh, be able to talk to y'all today about all these things. Um, so if everyone doesn't mind going around introducing themselves, that would be awesome. Megan, you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, thanks for, for having us. Uh, my name is Megan Barker. I am the Bristol Bay organizer for Trout Unlimited, and I am based up here in Anchorage. Awesome. Eric? Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. My name is Eric Booten. I am the Aklutna Project Manager and Sportsman's Coordinator for Trout Unlimited Alaska, and I also live in Anchorage. It's pretty uh, pretty far away. Right I think we're, we're pretty spread out right now. I'm in Athens, Georgia. Andrew, you're over in, over in Colorado, so we got some, some great distance covered right now. Oh, yeah, 100%. Good representation from different corners of the U.S., that's for sure. Eric, I guess I'll start with you. Are you from Alaska originally, or uh, where are you from down in the lower 48? Yeah, I'm I'm not from Alaska originally. I'm actually uh, born and raised in Colorado. I grew up in Littleton, Colorado, and spent uh, some good years in college and a little after uh, in Gunnison, Colorado, and exploring the, the Crested Butte area. Love that. What about you, Megan? Um, we've got a, a strong Colorado presence on the Trout Unlimited Alaska team. Uh, I also call Colorado um, my home. Um, I, I grew up in, in Fort Collins, um, just about an hour north of Eric. Um, but I uh, bounced around quite a bit before landing in Alaska uh, about five years ago and have um, lived in a couple other places around the state before making Anchorage home. And, uh, that was about a year and a half ago now. What, what drew you out to Alaska? I mean, the West is awesome. And I mean, that's where I'm drawn right now, but what, what drew you all the way up there? Uh, I mean, and I think Eric should definitely type in here uh, too. I mean, for me, when you think about Colorado, especially when you grow up there, like the only place more wild than Colorado, I think is Alaska. And so, um, I came up, initially for just a, a summer in college working in Glacier Bay National Park. Um, just the opportunity to work seasonally. It was just supposed to be a fun summer before I had to do an internship and do something a little bit more connected to um, the degree I was pursuing, which is social science and environmental policy. Um, but I kind of had that quintessential life-changing summer and promised myself that the second that I finished my degree, I'd be coming back to Alaska. So uh, I worked pretty hard to, to get back as soon as I could after I finished school. That's awesome. I mean, 
I feel like I know so many people who've gone out to just like even out West and for a summer and said, Oh, I'm just going to got to got to get it out of my system and then end up, uh, there full time. Eventually, Eric, what's the, what's the story with you of how you, you got up there? Well, I was fortunate enough to grow up, uh, living pretty much every weekend, getting outside, exploring rant, um, public lands and doing different adventures. And, um, Alaska's really always been on my mind since, as long as I can remember, um, because I absolutely loved skiing. And when I was younger, was obsessed with skiing, obsessed with ski movies. And so seeing these big mountainous peaks and just wanting to be up there, explore that uh, on skis um, has always been a draw to me. So I have grew up thinking Alaska was in my future. Um, and additionally, my grandpa used to come up to Alaska annually to, to do some salmon fishing and so I also grew up having family dinners in, in Colorado with his uh, fresh catches. And um, once I get it, started getting more into to fly angling, that just added a whole other layer of appeal for me to make it up to Alaska. Um, and I'll actually, I'll give my twin sister credit for being kind of the biggest spur in getting me up here. She actually accepted a teaching position uh, in Anchorage, um, and I came and visited her. And uh, six months later, I found a short-term job and was uh, loading my Xterra up with all the gear I thought I needed and got the dog in the car and hit the road and um, happy to still be here today. That's so awesome. I, I, I long to do something like that. And I just think I relate to that a lot of uh, loving all the facets of the outdoors and what public lands have to offer for us. Um, and what are y'all both y'all can pick whoever takes this first, but, uh, can y'all dive in a little more to what your roles are at Trout Unlimited? Go ahead, Eric. All right. <laughs> um, well, as the, uh, kind of two parts of main parts of my, uh, role in TU, um, you know, I find myself really helping out on a lot of different causes and campaigns, uh, that I care about, which adds some awesome diversity to my day. And I'm happy to work closely with Megan and, and the rest of our staff. But um, as the Occluda project manager, I help TU's efforts in, in supporting the restoration of the Occluda River, which is a, a salmon stream not far from Anchorage that due to historic hydroelectric development has uh, been hit really hard and, uh, what was once a thriving salmon fishery is, is now very limited population. Um, there was a historic dam that was abandoned there, blocking fish passage for nearly a hundred years. Uh, that was removed a few years ago, which was a, a big win. However, there's a, another dam upstream from there that doesn't release any water from uh, the lake. Therefore, fish can't really access that spawning ground or even the lake. Um, and so it's a really interesting opportunity for us to be able to help bring a uh, salmon stream back to life in Anchorage. Um, and there, I guess the, the quick summation there is there's the mitigation opportunity for the impact from those hydroelectric projects is currently unfolding. So um, it's pretty exciting to be a part of part of that story and a part of bringing salmon back for uh, the native village there as well as the rest of South Central Alaska. 
And as the, the sportsman coordinator, I work closely with uh, our chapters throughout Alaska, our, our members, our volunteers, our supportive businesses, uh, and engage them and let them know what's happening in Alaska, in our communities, when it comes to fish habitat conservation, public lands, what they can do, how they can be more involved and engaged. And it really brings me out into the community. Uh, and I absolutely love that aspect of it. Um, and clearly with uh, the current COVID situation, that is something that has been shaken up drastically. So I'm, I'm eager to return to some of that. But um, that was a pretty deep dive into <laughs> my role. <laughs> uh, a little bit of a tangent there, but um, I'll pass the pass the mic to you, Megan. Sure. So <clears throat> as a Bristol Bay organizer, uh, like I said, I've been with, with CU for about a, a year and a half now. And um, in my day-to-day, -day, primarily, I work with um, sportsmen and women, but also the um, outdoor uh, recreation businesses in our larger community um, on all things related to Bristol Bay and Pebble. So 99% of my work is working on the Save Bristol Bay campaign. And so um, my position was was added and, and really brought on to add capacity to our outreach and organizing and making sure that, you know, as this is largely one of TU's and arguably one of TU's um, biggest campaigns, um, making sure that there was a space for greater communication and outreach to anglers across our national network um, to make sure that they know exactly what was going on, especially over the course of a, the permitting process in which Pebble's the closest it has ever been to becoming a reality in Bristol Bay. So um, functionally, you know, what that looks like um, prior to COVID, I was traveling a lot, working with chapters in the lower 48, doing presentations, spreading the word. I was at sport shows, working the booth and, and talking to people about Pebble and, um, you know, having opportunities for them to take action in a variety of ways. And then um, managing a lot of our business partnerships with some of our, our big hitters that, that come out and are really supportive and help us in, in doing that work of spreading the word. So uh, in COVID, it's a lot more of, of digital organizing and, and trying to coordinate folks uh, via computer and social media. But uh, at the end of the day, I am living and breathing um, Pebble Mine in Bristol Bay. So yeah, that's what I do. That's awesome, you guys. And I'm just curious, you know, we have a ton of college kids involved in Five Rivers. We have over 130 college clubs around the country. So um, just for those types of people, I'm always curious to hear um, the stories of people in TU and how they came to TU and how you uh, got to where you're at today. Um, so kind of any um, little background story on how you got to where you are today and maybe some advice for, for people who uh, would be looking into a job similar to yours? Sure, I can, I can start. Um, I am very fortunate that I've known that working in the conservation arena for a nonprofit is, is something that I've wanted to do like since college and even arguably I probably knew that in high school too. And so because I have that kind of guidance, uh, I was able to tailor a lot of the opportunities as well as the college classes that I took and pursued while I was in school. And hands down, the, the most important thing that I, I did while I was in school um, were internships. And one of the internships I did was was in Washington, D.C., working with one of our uh, partners, the Wilderness Society, as their, their policy intern. Um, and 
it was an incredible experience. I think what I took away from that was that I, I love the work, but I wasn't super sold on living in DC and, and kind of having that lifestyle. And I knew that I wanted to be in Alaska. Uh, and so through the connections though, that, that I, um, made doing that internship and being in DC, that is directly the connection that I was able to leverage that got me my position with Trout Unlimited in Alaska. So I was able to really um, work those those um, connections uh, to, to help benefit me and get me into the organization. And I will say that I was a little bit nervous. And I think I even asked it, Eric was in my interview, but I think there's a big perception that, you know, Trout Unlimited you, you have to be a big angler. You have to be, you know, really fishy to, to work for the organization. And I was nervous because I was not that. Um, but I think it goes back to the fact, nonetheless, I was still hired, obviously, as I'm here. But, uh, you know, you come into the organization with a passion and background in conservation first. And, and anything you bring in with fishing after that uh, is certainly a huge help in your position and, and connecting with other anglers um, who are, are in the organization. So for me, doing the, having the conservation background and bringing it and presenting that was what helped me get in with the organization um, a few years ago. I think there's plenty of people in TU that can help you out with that, that fishiness aspect. I think some people are. Oh, uh, Eric is, Eric is one of them. And I mean, I have come leaps and bounds since I started with you. I consider myself an angler now. No, we're good. We are good. But it was definitely I was a little nervous when I um, had to bring that up at the beginning uh, of my interview. <laughs> Love that. Right on. Uh, Eric. Yeah. We'll see. So uh, in college at Western State, Colorado University, I studied uh, environmental studies and, and sociology uh, and got degrees in both. Um, and the conservation really, really spoke to me throughout my college career. Um, and along the, kind of through that process, I've kind of identified that I was really interested in the, the nonprofit sector. Um, it just seemed to be the right kind of fit for me. Um, and after I graduated, when I was looking for a place to land and settled on Alaska, um, I was able to get in contact with some of the conservation nonprofits up there and, and find some good connections. Um, and I started off at um, kind of in the trenches as a, a door-to-door canvasser, which is not the most glamorous job by any means, but I absolutely learned a ton of professional skills um, and approached it with a good attitude and got a lot of good connections within the conservation community. Um, and so I think that's, just one thing to keep in mind for graduating college students is you, you're not going to be able to necessarily walk into your dream job right away. You're lucky if you are, and that might happen, but you might have to start in a lower level and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and it's a lot of the, the time and attitude that you put into that, that, that pays dividends. Um, and so from that work, I was able to get a position with another conservation nonprofit that did also salmon habitat um, advocacy and, Pretty much when I was on the way to Alaska, I had already really started to shift my identity to being very much a, a fly fisherman and um, uh, embracing becoming a, a bit of a fish nerd. Um, and so once I got into Alaska, that fishing bug really, really bit hard. Um, and to be honest, fly fishing in 
Alaska was just a totally different game compared to what I was used to in, in Colorado. And so um, I also needed some, some help in um, figuring out some of the techniques and getting the suggestions. And fortunately, the South Central Travel Limited chapter, um, South Central Alaska Travel Limited chapter was just getting started at the time. And, and so I started attending their events and getting involved with them because um, they were interested in conservation. They also had the skills and knowledge for the fishing, which I was, was interested in. Um, and so I very quickly, based off my interest, got enlisted as a board member, um, which was a blast. Uh, and that gave me a little bit more exposure to, to Trout Unlimited, um, what they were up to in Alaska, being able to be a part of that beyond, um, I guess, uh, just an additional level of conservation beyond what I was doing in my day job. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it, put a lot of time into supporting the chapter and eventually a well, at that point in time, I'd kind of been, had the opportunity to meet the Travel Limited Alaska crew, really liked working with them, really liked what they were doing, uh, and knew at some point I would really like to work for TU. Uh, and a few years down the line, a position became available that was more or less the job I was already doing and very, very quickly applied. So, um, and now I've been at TU for, oh, going on four years now, I think. Yeah, I think it's probably a little different fishing up in Alaska than the four weight seven X size twenty uh, midges that you're using in Colorado. You can you can go that way if you want, but um, <laughs> there's there's a lot of different opportunities for for chucking streamers, and then obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but for uh, I guess the the bead fishing um, is a whole nother, uh I guess subculture of fly fishing or something that is good old, popular and productive here. So anyway, good old totally Alaska. out of my element and very thankful to connect with people that knew their stuff. Good old Alaskan so, bee so Are you on the bee train? Are you on the bee train, Eric? <laughs> is it sinful I, or not sinful? Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's a whole other podcast in itself. I I mean, I wouldn't say it's my favorite way to catch fish, but there are undoubtedly times where if, if you want to catch fish, then a bead's the best choice. Um, but I think one of the best parts about about bead fishing, whether you like it or not, is it gets people hooked on fishing, and getting people hooked on fishing <laughs> through your, our lens is just building more advocates. So, what, what's your favorite color? I don't know. I, I, and I am case in point in that because I think Eric was the one who turned me on to bee fishing and I went to some of the urban streams in, in Anchorage and then got hooked and I was like, this is awesome. And so I'm a big proponent of it. Um, and it's helpful for new people too. <laughs> so we're pro, pro bead. No, totally. Pro bead. I think, I think everyone here is pro bead, <laughs> which would definitely upset. I think the fly fishing purists are listening to this, but you know what? dry fly. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if you put enough floating on it, who knows? <laughs> but uh, Eric, Joseph, do we want to dive into um, the paddle line proposal? Yeah, let's. I mean, I think that's what we uh, came on here to talk about. I know beads are really exciting, but I think that get diving into pebble mine would be a really good idea. Can you guys give us a little bit of like an overview of kind of what is 
proposed for the Pebble Mine. Um, and just kind of like a little bit of background for those people who are just kind of seeing this most recent rendition of, of Pebble. Sure, I can start. And, and I'll just give my, you know, one sentence explanation for those who are listening who have maybe never heard of Pebble or it's been a really long time since you've tuned into what's going on with Bristol Bay. But basically, Pebble is the proposal to build the largest open pit copper and gold mine that would be in North America right in the headwaters of Bristol Bay, um, which is the most prolific sockeye salmon fishery on the planet, uh, located in southwest Alaska. And so the pebble deposit was discovered back in the the late 1980s. And since then, it's been uh, a fairly hard push by a a Canadian mining company primarily to develop this, this proposal. And what we've seen, especially over the last um, 10 to 15 years, especially that Trout Unlimited has been very involved in this fight, is is a, a really uh, strong attempt to acquire the most important federal permits that this project would need to move forward. And so, again, that has been primarily ramping up over the, the course of the, the last 10 years, but more so in, in the last um, two and a half years as Pebble is actively in the permitting process. And um, that has been carried out by the, the Army Corps of Engineers. And we, as we sit, as we talk right now, um, we are in the, the truly the, the final, final stages before Pebble is either going to be issued their most important federal permit or if it will be denied. Right on. Um, Eric, anything you'd like to add before? I got a question for Megan for a follow-up, but figure that's a whole nother wormhole. So. Yeah. Well, I, I, I knew we were going to keep talking about this for a while, and, and there's a whole lot to discuss here. Um, I think Megan did a really good job on the, the overview. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it, this is something that's been going on for more than a decade now for people our age and younger in the Bristol Bay region. This has been their life, has been this mine and this threat. Um, and where we're at now, uh, we, we've come a long ways, and it's still a big threat, but we have a whole lot of momentum, and so I'm excited to dig in deeper. Awesome. So, sorry, Joseph, I have one more question, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you. But um, what? So, can you explain for us, like, where the the mining process uh permitting process is by comparison to now versus like uh the last time it was brought up during the obama administration um and kind of where are we in difference from from there from back then to today certainly so so this proposal and and this effort has really gone through a couple waves in which you know, something good for us happens politically. People think Pebble's dead. Um, you know, something bad happens for us, or, you know, Pebble gains some momentum. People think it's happening. And so in the Obama administration, we had one of those those big um, curves where there were proposed protections for Bristol Bay um, that were outlined by the administration. And, um, you know, with that, Pebble at the time had, had lost a bunch of investors. They were really not looking like they were going to be able to move forward, especially in that political climate. And so we saw Pebble get quiet, not not go away altogether. But it certainly uh, for for Alaskans and for people who follow this, we thought maybe that they were going to you know quietly slink off into into the darkness um, and and not come back. 
However, um, with the change of administration in, in 2016 and 2017, uh, Pebble saw a new window of opportunity for them to, to move forward and try and acquire um, this most important federal permit, which is their Clean Water Act uh, 404 permit. And so right after um, the Trump administration came in, we saw Pebble very quickly begin to basically get their act together. And, and in December of 2017, they applied, uh, they officially applied for this Clean Water Act permit. And so after that, um, again, that was the time that I was brought on. That's when our coalition, the whole crew of people up here and, and across the U.S. who work on this issue really started to say, Pebble's really going for it this time. And they are, they are taking the active steps to uh, acquire what they need in order to actually dig in Bristol Bay. And um, when they applied for that permit, it kicked off what would normally be um, a six to seven year permit application review period. I mean, it takes a really long time to, to go through this whole process as outlined by uh, NEPA and, and the Clean Water Act. But instead, the Army Corps of Engineers rolled out this really fast-tracked permit review process um, that is supposed to be um, done before November 2020. And so what we've seen over the last two years is this permit process play out at a really um, fast-paced um, rate. And that has what we've seen steamroll Alaskans that have has not included all of the necessary components of risk analysis that need to happen and has overarchingly been a really um, poorly carried out process. And so, you know, where we stand right now, um, as of last Monday, uh, the Army Corps has now done their complete review and they can issue a decision. They can say at this point, yes, Pebble is going to be granted this permit or no, they are not going to be uh, issued this permit. And this is where this big news and announcement came from that has been causing a ton of a ruckus in a good way that such Trout Unlimited has been uh, elevating and sharing a lot about. Do you want me to go specifically into that yet, or does that answer your question? What do you think, Joseph? Do we go go full wormhole, or are we... Uh... Let's, let's do it. Okay, so like I said, last Monday um, represents the, represented the, the opportunity for the Army Corps of Engineers to say permit granted or permit denied, and what they did was they announced that the Pebble project, as it is currently proposed, will not receive a permit because it had uh, too many impacts, basically, on the water resources and the, the fishery. And uh, immediately, that was something that we saw and we celebrated. We cheered on um, the fact that the Army Corps said that the project, as it currently is proposed, um, doesn't uh, hold up and, and will not be issued a permit. That's huge. That's what we've been fighting for. That's what anglers and, and hunters from across the country have been petitioning to the president and standing up and saying over and over for years. And so it was a huge, um, a huge step in the right direction for, for us. Uh, however, you know, when, when you read the, the next line of the Army Corps announcement that they wouldn't issue per, the permit as proposed, they did say that, that Pebble, uh, if they changed their plan and changed their mitigation proposal, they could come back and receive a, a permit in the future. And so basically the Army Corps kind of left us in in this middle ground of saying, we're not going to permit the mine yet. Um, and so, you know, from that, our message turns to, we celebrate this as, like I said, a huge step in the right direction, but also 
Pebble isn't killed yet and, and Bristol Bay is not safe yet and we can't let our guard down and for uh, our team and for, for anglers you know, who are following this issue, it's so important that we remain vigilant and know that uh, you know, good things have happened and, and we do have a lot of forward momentum, but we have to push this over the edge and, and push this through, the, through to the finish line. So as of now, it's pretty much they can come back and they can alter their plan a little bit and make the core happy. And even if the core is happy with it, it doesn't mean it's going to be any better for the watershed than it would have been if they had gotten this permit now. Joseph, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I got one more question for Megan. Um, so how do you see the, the Pebble Partnership um, following up on the news of their current proposals not uh, going to go through. How do you guys kind of see this playing out? Um, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, immediately, like less than an hour after this announcement was made by the Army Corps, uh, the CEO of the Pebble, Pebble Limited Partnership came out saying, we're going to have a new mitigation plan. We're going to, you know, meet the, the things that the Army Corps has said we have to do. We're going to do it uh, in a matter of a couple of, of weeks, which one is absurd because these mitigation plans require so much work to, to put together. And especially in a place like Bristol Bay, where there's so many unique um, factors that have to be fully accounted for. Um, Pebble saying that they're going to be able to do that in, in a matter of weeks is, is really outrageous. And so um, they've also been making a lot of statements like this is normal. This is pretty normal for the Army Corps to say, go back and do more work, which is true. But you know, we, we push back on that and say, Pebble has had their chance. They have had their chance to go through this, this permit process. And, you know, the Army Corps found that they were not compatible to meet the needs of the Clean Water Act, but then also um, what is what is needed to preserve the integrity of Bristol Bay. So um, I think we're going to continue to see a lot of really strong pushes from Pebble to try and move this project forward. Um, but the matter of the fact is that this announcement just put up a massive roadblock for Pebble to move forward. And it's going to be really, really hard. And that's again, why we celebrate, like this is going to be a big challenge for Pebble to overcome. And, and you're right, they could do it. Um, Army Corps could come back and, you know, give them the, the green stamp of approval. Um, if, if they think that the mitigation plan is up to snuff, but that does not go beyond the fact that we have a very strong record to show that this permitting process, uh, as well as the, the scientific analysis and the scientific facts of, of Bristol Bay is that a mine like Pebble is not compatible with this fishery and these resources. And a lot of that has to do with the, the type of ecosystem, right? For, for folks that haven't uh, heard or have ever seen photos of, of Pebble, where Pebble Mine was proposed to go, it's a, it's a giant marsh, right? Pretty much, it's just yep. like a giant, uh, just a giant ball. Yeah. So, exactly, yeah. In incredibly wet. I describe the the land as like a sponge; it just absorbs so much water, and so through that, it creates a really hard task to be able to mitigate the impacts of billions of tons of waste rock and billions of gallons of wastewater that is that will be a byproduct of this mine. Absolutely. Um, Joseph, you've been quiet. Uh, I, I think I've hit my, my question quota. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I'm just soaking it all in. I, this A lot of this is information that 
I find extremely intriguing. And as a hunter and as a angler, this is something like I've never been to Alaska or Bristol Bay, but it's a place that I've always wanted to visit, uh, whether that's for hunting or for, for angling purposes. And just, I guess for someone in my shoes that has no real connection right now, the Bristol Bay in the trout and salmon fishing there, like regardless, you might be interested in that, but what's something that like, say someone in Georgia, like me, um, or anyone in the lower 48 can do to help with this project to make sure that we're advocating for it not to exist and why, why should we care? Yeah. I mean, I think, and Eric, you're more than welcome to, to chime in here too. I think, you know, when we talk about Bristol Bay, it is the best of the best and whether you have the opportunity to you know fish it every summer or it sits at the bucket list or maybe a, re- a retirement gift for yourself um you know at, at some point in the future we care about these places that don't exist anywhere else on the planet because they are so unique and because if we mess this up we will not have an opportunity to make it better. And we can point to so many places across our country and across this planet where, where we've seen this, where we have decided to go with development instead of um, leaving things as they are. And Bristol Bay is a, a prime example of where we haven't done that and where we are committed to preserving that place. And so um, I think if, if you care about fisheries in general, if you care about conservation, if you care about the great outdoors, Bristol Bay is is the shining light and example of what it means to say, no, some places are, are totally off limits um, to this kind of development. Eric, what do you have to add to that? Well, Joseph, you're definitely not alone. That's one of the things about Alaska in general. People worldwide know what we have here, how special it is. They may not ever get to visit it, but the fact that Alaska is wild, intact, just captures their imaginations and makes them eager to stand up and advocate for it. Um, and Megan, you did a really good job, but I think for the listeners of, of this podcast who are interested in hunting, fishing, wild lands, um, and native fish, I think one of the, the big reasons that these listeners might care is um, just if you, if you think about Bristol Bay and then actually zoom out from there. So I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is, and Megan alluded to this, is Bristol Bay is extremely special for a lot of reasons in way of its intact habitat ecosystems, strong fish runs. But we, we've, we've learned the lesson before from California all the way through the Pacific Northwest and into British Columbia and other parts of Alaska, what happens when we contribute to the habitat loss of salmon and steelhead and and more than 400 runs of salmon and steelhead have been listed as um, extinct or endangered. Um, And that's just in the last hundred years or so. So we can, we can track the damage that has been done to these kinds of fisheries and, for me, with, with that in mind, knowing what has been done to Pacific wild salmon um, throughout the Pacific Northwest and beyond, and, and looking at Bristol Bay as this 
cherry on top, this very much shining piece in kind of a, a dark puzzle, um, that just makes it all the more important in my mind. And I think for a lot of people who really care about wild fish and, and wild places, and while a lot of rivers and systems are, are setting not not records, but having just poorer and poorer runs for Chinook salmon and other species. Uh, Bristol Bay, a lot of its rivers are still getting extremely strong runs of Chinook and are actually setting records the last couple of years for sockeye salmon runs. And that is phenomenal. And I would just, I also want to add part of your question, um, Joseph, was what can people do? And, you know, from my position working with grassroots, I just want to one show my and share my um, unending gratitude for especially the the anglers in the trout limited community and and our friends too who have continued to speak on this issue who have continued to show up and fight and you know with the announcement that we had last Monday a lot of people in, in the media especially was really quick to say that oh a couple you know key Republicans or, or key people close to the president were the ones that made this happen and I just you know want to push back on that and say maybe a little bit, but more so it was absolutely critical that we had thousands of anglers and thousands of, of hunting and fishing businesses who um, have been outspoken and been loud. And I want to make it clear that continuing that is how we stop this, how we push this over the edge and make sure that Pebble is fully denied this permit. And so for the folks who are listening um, number one thing you can do is go to www.savebristolbay.org slash tell President Trump. And, and we have a petition there that is one, a thank you for the actions that were taken last week, because that is important in recognizing that. But that number two follows up and, and requests that he deny the permit. And we, um, this spring, we were able to rally 50,000 uh, anglers to sign on to that, which was delivered to the president with a, with a slew of other um, organizing tools that, that Trout Unlimited coordinated. But I also just want to be clear that the things that you share on social media, it matters. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Help us grow. Help us share information. As someone who like was literally coordinating the tweet storm that we did a couple weeks ago, the fact that we have this network of people who are plugged in, if you can't do anything else um, you know, in your day-to-day life, following us and making sure you're sharing information is critical at, at this stage of um, of the fight. And so those two are what I would leave um, our, li- our listeners today with of, of what you can do to help us in making sure we, we fully stop Pebble. That connection of all the people joining together to sign the petitions, to post on social media, all that stuff is really cool. When it fills up my Instagram feed, it, it almost fires me up a little bit of how many people want to protect a place that's so wild. Like you said, uh, Eric, I think that those places make us dream. And I think that preserving those places is, is so important. And I think that's so fitting that this episode is being released during Public Lands Month. And I think that's just a, a shining example of of public lands and why they need to exist. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of along those lines too, I'd be curious kind of because this is public lands month, uh, what is the biggest public land lesson that people can take away from Bristol Bay, take home to their own 
uh, sacred public lands uh, in their own state and in their own backyard that uh, they may feel more connected to and are also feeling uh, threats of something, you know, like the boundary waters and their mine issue um, in other places across the West and, and East. Yeah. I like that question a lot. Um, and, and I think that the pebble issues very much uh, in, on in the national forefront at the moment. Um, but I think there's a lot that can be learned from it that can certainly be translated to really any public lands or conservation issue. Um, in, in two pieces that come to my mind, uh, the first being, and, and we, we kind of just talked about this, but um, there is a very diverse group of Americans, um, outdoor uh, recreationists, and, and interests that really value public lands. Um, and that's one of the strengths behind public lands is they unite us. Uh, they bring us together in singing the same course and fighting for something that, that all of us care about. Yes, we interact with them differently. In Bristol Bay, uh, there's different user groups who harvest salmon differently, who often don't, do not see eye to eye. Um, and we have this really big, broad group of people that come from totally different backgrounds and interact with these plants differently, but they're standing up together in order to protect it. And, and that's one of the things that has been clearly instrumental in this campaign and something that I think should very much be considered when boiling down your own public lands fight. And uh, I think another piece is that we absolutely, as hunters, anglers, boaters, hikers, birders, you name it, um, we need to be vigilant about our, our public lands. And Bristol Bay is absolutely one of America's gems. In my mind, we shouldn't even be having this discussion about the pebble mine because of how much it offers us. Um, and so a lot of our, our public lands are so incredibly valuable to us. They're honestly, they're not safe. Um, and it, it's up to us to be vigilant and, and, and looking out for them and, and advocating for them. Um, and so even considering the public lands around you, um, I think it's always wise a good idea to have your thumb on what's happening and what potential threats there might be and um, being an advocate for your own public lands. And I'm glad that this is happening during Public Lands Month. What a, what a perfect fit. Yeah, I think Eric hit it perfectly. You said exactly what I would have said. And the only um, thing I would add was that Bristol Bay is such a, an, an example of what it means to be in this fight for such a long time. And, um, you know, not every public lands fight is a, is a two decade long battle. Um, sometimes it's smaller, sometimes it's longer than that. But the, and, and that's why I go back to staying plugged in and staying engaged, even if it's just on one issue, whether that's Bristol Bay or what's happening, you know, right in your backyard. It is so crucial that um, we do not let off off the brakes one bit and we, you know, use our power that we collectively have, whether it's teaming up with others from unlikely backgrounds or it is, um, you know, working within our own networks it's so crucial that we do not stop um, at, at any place. And, and Bristol Bay is a great example of how that relentlessness has, has paid off 
uh, in what we've even just seen last week. Absolutely. Um, and I got one last question before, uh, Joseph, we can turn over to you for whatever ones you have left. But um, aside from Pebblemon, I know this is more speculative, but um, what do you guys think is another looming issue that uh, Alaska or otherwise that people should be aware of um, in addition to the Pebblemon um, that you all see in the, in the news that people should be aware of? In Alaska, uh, number two is that people should definitely be paying attention to are the issues with the, the Tongass National Forest and the roadless rule uh, down in, in southeast Alaska. And, um, you know, it's the potential for um, protections for our national forest, uh, critical salmon habitat to be um, taken away so that uh, um, the, the timber industry can, can have significant impacts on, on old growth forests in our nation's largest national forests. Um, it is significant. It is crucial that we are paying attention to that too. And, and uh, it, it's our number, I would say it's our number two issue that we work on up here in, in um, with Child Limited Alaska after Bristol Bay. Eric, maybe you have a different idea, but that was the number one thing that came to my mind. Yeah, um, uh, I, you know, I'm really deciding where to take this. I, and I have to say that I think that uh, the, the number one thing that comes to my mind right now, and it just ties into the pebble and, and food security and all of the habitat and conservation work that Trotted Limited does um, in Alaska and beyond, and that has to be climate change. Um, and I don't have a whole lot of answers or places have really offered up a whole lot of insight on on that at the moment, but I in the last few years there has been lots of data collection across the state of Alaska, uh, and there's been some really alarming trends in stream temperature uh, and um, lots of streams in which cold water fish are being overly stressed um, based off the water temperature and. There have been some pretty mass die-offs where salmon haven't been able to even get to the point where they're able to spawn due to that warm temperature. Um, and I think it's going to become, and it's clearly going to become an increasing problem for, for the state of Alaska. And cold water fish need cold water. And I think that just really underscores our import, the importance of um, our advocacy keep these systems intact because when you have an intact ecosystem you do get those cold water influences you do get the places where these fish can get some some sanctuary when it's warm water and still complete their their spawn so, um clearly a big topic and a and a heavy note to share out there but um it's a big concern that's a better answer than i gave it's true <laughs> Excellent. It's all connected. It's all connected. Oh yeah. And, and I think that we could keep diving into this for a whole nother like episode for days for however long, cause it's just an ongoing conversation and one thing builds off of another. And for all these episodes, we're going to have a little blog post that if you want to do a little more research on your own and 
want a little more information, we're going to throw the links that were mentioned in the episode. And like Megan was talking about, those ways that you can get involved, we're going to make sure that you have all those resources that we've talked about to look more into that hey and guys, take action I just and be able to, to interject help out here at stop where I'm talking about into, getting involved uh, all of in those ways that you can that, that make a difference about. for stopping Pebble Mine from happening. Because our first intention with this episode was to release it during Public Lands Month. And we mentioned that earlier in the episode about it being Public Lands Month, but it's October now. So that's passed. But a couple of weeks ago, the Pebble tapes were released. And this was something that we were not going to miss and leave out of this episode. So Andrew and I sat down with Megan again and got a chance to talk about the Pebble Tapes. We had a really interesting conversation and we hope you enjoy this little excerpt uh, to add on to the narrative of Pebble Mine. So welcome, welcome back, Megan. I know we recorded the initial episode a couple of weeks ago and had all these plans for it, but so much has happened as I kind of just mentioned. And I would just love for you to kind of run us through the timeline of these new Pebble tapes that just came out. Sure. Thanks for taking the time to, to come back around on this and, and give folks an update. So two weeks ago today on Monday, uh, we were dropped a massive present in our lap uh, with, with the Pebble tapes. And so for, for folks who haven't seen or heard about them yet, basically uh, a group, uh, a nonprofit group based in Washington, D.C. called the Environmental Investigation Agency. They released a series of 12 tapes um, that are about an hour in length altogether. And uh, the, the crux of it, their undercover investigators uh, secretly recorded uh, well, they they posed and then secret they posed as invest potential investors in the Pebble project, and then secretly recorded their video conversations with two Pebble executives. And over the course of their conversations, brought uh, a series of of really damning things for the Pebble project to light. And I think the the two biggest takeaways that we saw from these Pebble tapes that were released is is one that Pebble is planning on building a significantly larger mine than what they have put forward to the Army Corps of Engineers, to Congress, uh, to Alaskans and the American people. Uh, their initial plan is for a 20-year mine, but then these these tapes revealed that their actual plan and intentions are for a 200-year-long mine. Uh, so that was a, a huge revelation. And then the, the second major component of the Pebble tapes is that they revealed the overwhelming political political collusion that's going on behind the scenes to push forward this project and the permitting process when the science and the public opposition uh, are not there to support it. And so this is information that we've heard before that we were pretty aware of, but the way that it was packaged in these um, sting operation style tapes uh, put forward the information in a new light and in a way that uh, cast a really, really bad spotlight onto where Pebble stands right now. Uh, so that's the, that was what came forward a couple of weeks ago with the tape. Yeah. And I got a chance to look through some of them. I, I thought they packaged it pretty well, put it on their website and all these different parts. And it, I think it was an end up total of 12 parts separated into themes. And it just kind of 
I don't know, broke my heart a little bit of how they were truly um, almost lying about what their plans were. Well, I, they were lying. They were yeah. straight up saying, this is what we're doing. And meanwhile, they're turning their backs and going to investors and saying, well, actually, this is this is what we want to do. We're going to do, we're telling them it's an open pit mine and it's 20 years. But I mean, they said straight up in the video, all right, well, 20 years, mm -hmm. we have that open pit mine, but with this much rock, like the way it'll sound better is we say, we'll use an open pit mine and we won't use this chemical and we may not recover as much gold from that, but it sounds better and the public will receive it better. And that's going to make it easier for us to win the Alaskan people um, over on this project. In addition to that saying, well, then after that 20 years, we could go and do underground mining. We don't have to stay with the open pit or we can do what they said was it probably will be both. And that's mm -hmm. just alarming to me about um, how the environmental impact, even in that 20 years, if the mine were to exist, would be terrible. But all those more years can just add up and make it worse and worse and worse. And the potential for uh, a serious environmental situation increases. Absolutely. And I think also we have to remember that Pebble's small mine plan, the, the 20 years, the, you know, trying to make it a palatable project for Alaskans and people in the region and, and regulators, it's still a massive plan. It is still going to destroy thousands of acres of wetlands and uh, over 100 miles of, stream, of salmon streams. And even their small mine plan is huge. So the fact that they want to, I mean, this is the confirmation that we, we knew, but now we, that we completely have that their intention is to turn the Bristol Bay region, Southwest Alaska into an industrial mining district. And, and exactly right, it, it carries significantly more impacts to nearby communities and the fishery uh, and all the other resources of the region. So, so oh, go ahead, Joseph. You're good. Then I'll ask my question. Um, <laughs> so with these tapes coming out, um, we'll give people an opportunity uh, with the link in our blog post to all the tapes so you can go listen to it yourselves. But what does this really mean for um, Northern Dynasty and the Pebble Project itself? That's a great question. And I think just some of the immediate fallout from the tapes sets the standard and and kind of shows the trajectory of where they are hopefully headed. So Monday, the tapes were released by Wednesday, Pebble Limited Partnership CEO, Tom Collier, who was on, who was one of the executives recorded in the tapes. He resigned from his position, which we didn't call for that. Uh, I don't think anyone was like publicly calling for that, but it just goes to show um, how, how damning the accusations that he, he made towards, members of Congress uh, uh, and other elected officials from the state of Alaska uh, painted it in a really bad light and put Pebble in a really challenging position to move forward. Um, but also it's important to talk about some of the legality of it. So Tom Collier last fall went before the um, House Transportation Subcommittee on Water Resources and Environment. And under oath, he said that the 
Pebble Mine has no intention of expanding past 20 years. So if these tapes are, you know, fully vetted by Congress, um, lying to Congress is a crime. And so not only are there significant questions being called uh, for for the mine plan itself, but the executives have have to to answer to uh, the tapes and the information that was revealed. So um, right now we know they're definitely in a bit of a tailspin trying to make up for, for this. It certainly was, you know, two weeks ago, this was the biggest news in the state of Alaska and made national news again on, on some pretty big sources. And right now they are, I think disgrace is a, is a very appropriate world, not word, not only in the natural resource extraction community, but among Alaska senators and uh, Alaskans as a whole. I mean, we, we didn't like the mining company before. We did not trust Northern Dynasty Minerals to do this project. We've been strong in that for you know the last uh, 10 to 15 years. But again, this just goes to show that there's no trust uh, to let this, this mining company come into the, most poli- the headwaters of the most prolific sockeye salmon fishery on the planet and, and develop a mine plan that based on these tapes is fraudulent so megan that that's you know super interesting and how does you know northern dynasty pivot from here with the people of latin you know not only with the people of alaska but with regulators saying uh you know where how do you recover from something like this if, if you're that yeah i mean that's a great question for pebble to have to answer i'm not going to do their job for them um but <laughs> You know, the, you you see it in, you know, when when Collier resigned, uh, it's interesting, the other executive, Ron Thiessen, who is, he's the CEO of Northern Dynasty Minerals, which is the parent company for the Pebble Limited Partnership. He was saying all the same things, too, and he didn't resign. Uh, and, you know, the company issued an apology that was weak. And, you know, it, it's all a big distraction from what the reality of Pebble is. And they didn't go back and say, all right, you know, we're going to do things differently or we're going to go back to the drawing board and try to come up with a new plan. I mean, they are trying to to pivot to a place where they think that the, their project can still be, uh, you know, supported and can still uh, receive its federal permit, which is what it's trying to do. I will say, though, that I, I don't know how you recover from the fact that you had our two senators, both Senator Murkowski and Senator Sullivan, uh, they have always been on the side of the, the permitting process. They've always said, let Pebble go through the process. You know, we have the environmental laws in this country that if it's not compatible with the Clean Water Act, it will not be permitted. And um, after the Army Corps of Engineers said that Pebble's project wouldn't be permitted as, as currently proposed, uh, both senators came out and supported that decision, saying that, you know, Pebble doesn't meet the, the high standards uh, and that shouldn't get a permit. But then after this, especially because these tapes, if you go watch the ones that are specifically about the Alaska senators, they say some really um, offensive and inappropriate things about where the senators stand. And especially Senator Sullivan was was very compelled by this. They both responded saying, I mean, Senator Murkowski was furious, like literally furious in the recording of the interview with her. Uh, And Senator Sullivan made his strongest uh, statement of opposition to the Pebble Mine that he has ever made. And he said, let me be clear, I oppose Pebble, no Pebble Mine. I mean, that's huge. So now not only do they not have, they, they are in a tough place with Alaskans, 
they're certain they've certainly dug themselves a hole. Yes, pun intended with, with, uh, Alaska, uh, leaders. Wow. Yeah, no, totally understandable. You know, it's like, um, you know, two faced <laughs> organization. To a certain totally. Uh, totally. Mm-hmm. Definitely some, uh, some things to answer to, especially, uh, with regulators and, uh, what what would be the punishment um, to line to Congress if uh, they move forward with actions against uh, the former CEO? Um, you know, that's a great question, one that I don't think I, I have directly um, could potentially face jail time, um, probably some fines as well. Certainly doesn't look good for any kind of future in the mining and permitting world, um, politically too. Um, yeah, I don't think... Well, let's see. I guess the House Transportation Committee, they did uh, share information about it so that they would be responding accordingly. Uh, Also, Senator Maria Cantwell from Washington, she has called on the Justice Department to complete an investigation um, to the Pebble Limited Partnership over these tapes. So I think that's something that that could potentially come down. But the specifics, I'm not sure. And it hasn't been followed up on. I think there are just some bigger issues going on in Congress right now. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to seeing how this plays out. I mean, I think that we can take this as a big win for now, but like you said in our first, first recording that, I mean, we can take this like say with the permit permitting process, we can take this and celebrate it, but we really don't know what's going to happen until it does. And um, who knows what's going to happen. We could have big news in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. And um, hopefully we can continue to get these big wins as we have uh, ever since the um, Army Corps came back with their decision a couple of weeks ago. Yep, certainly. And again, I would just reiterate that the things that were said in the Pebble tapes the they're not new. So we've heard these executives at mining conferences on record saying that they plan to, you know, develop a multi-generational mine. And we, CNN has investigated the very close relationship that governor Dunleavy has had with the company and their communications with the white house. I mean, this stuff has been documented, but these tapes are just a, a very, um, new and and shocking way in which this information was uncovered. And again, I hope that it doesn't distract from the fact that this project to this day is not worthy of its permit. And we need to continue to hold the line and make sure that our members of Congress, especially not only one, investigate Pebble, um, but two, urge the Army Corps to deny this mine plan, its, its permit, because we are now, now, like I said, talking about a fraudulent mine plan that uh, has not been fully vetted by federal regulators and the American people as the mining company intends to build in Bristol Bay. So again, I hope it's another thing that riles people up. I hope it's something that incur- makes people mad and encourages people to take action. And that's exactly what it should be. Um, so, yeah. So Megan, you also mentioned that there, that this might be a cascading effect for more information to come out of Washington in regards to the permit and the future of the mine. Um, you know, what are kind of the next things to expect from, you know, the state of Alaska or Congress or uh, the White House on this topic? 
Certainly. So with the tapes itself, I mean, I think uh, an oversight committee hearing, uh, making Pebble come back in and, and testify again in front of Congress and, and really push hard on them about what their true intentions were and, uh, you know, get to the bottom of, of the fact that, you know, these statements were, were made and, and are incredibly problematic in a permitting process that is so far towards to being completed. Uh, and so I think that would be a big step by, by Congress. Uh, additionally, a Department of Justice uh, investigation too. Nonetheless, like I said, a lot of things are happening in Congress right now. And I think with the, the Army Corps permitting timeline, what's more likely we will see is Pebble is probably still going to try and release a, a mitigation plan, which is what um, they said they would do when the Army Corps said they wouldn't issue a permit to their project as currently proposed. So right now we are waiting to see if that mitigation plan um, is released. And we know that it likely will not be up to snuff what's required by the Clean Water Act yet again. And so our call continues to be this permit needs to be denied. So after a mitigation plan or before, the Army Corps could say, the permit will be denied or granted. And so we are waiting to, re to respond then. Great. And when do, you, when do you think the timeline is for that? Well, like right before the Pebble tapes, Tom Collier was saying, oh, in a couple weeks, in a couple weeks, uh, you know, they, they will have a mitigation plan submitted to the core. But I think the Pebble tapes pose a, a serious setback then. Uh, 90 days. Put that puts them, I believe, late November. And so I would assume they would want to try and get it done before the election. Again, everything kind of tends to all pile on right at the end. So I would say in the next couple of weeks, we can expect to see um, some major movement here on, on what comes next and where the thing moves forward in permitting. Yeah. So uh, what would you, I guess, say to people at home to be on the lookout? What can they be doing proactively now? Um, especially uh, people in college. Yeah, so this is another great place for, for you to reach out to your members of Congress. And whether you're in Alaska or, or anywhere else, this is something that members of Congress uh, need to be hearing about. And remember, members of Congress from, from different states sit on the committees that can hold Pebble accountable. And so uh, we want them to be hearing from as many people as possible that uh, Pebble continues to be a massive threat to, to Bristol Bay, to American jobs, American fish-based economies. And so um, our Take Action link now go, will direct you um, to send a note to Congress, and I encourage you to do that or to call if you're comfortable. Uh, and then same thing we said last time we checked in, following on, on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Uh, we're sharing updates as we have them, and we'll make sure that the next call to action is clear through those platforms. So that's the best way to stay connected. Great. And we'll make sure to include all of those links in the, in the blog post that we're going to put out with this, um, up on tu.com and, uh, was it tu.org, Andrew? tu.org. tu.org. Yeah. Um, Don't listen to the first thing I said. Um, <laughs> but. And that's on stand up too, right? Megan to stand up.tu.org. It is, yep. To be involved, right on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Megan, for taking the time to come back on with us and give us this update. It's great news. It's a big deal. And I'm glad that we got this in here um, to throw into to the episode. Certainly. Thanks for having me back. 
hopefully next time we're connecting it is uh, we're celebrating something something big and good for Bristol Bay. Yeah, that would that would be awesome. Hope you enjoyed that little update. But let's take it back to the first recording of the episode and get the flies from Megan and Eric for the fly competition. Have y'all kind of decided uh, what y'all want to pick for the for the Instagram contest? Sure. My my go to answer for my favorite fly is always whatever Eric ties for me. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna put you put you on the spot, and uh, Eric has a sweet little side hustle of tying his own flies that you should definitely you should definitely plug and check out. But the fly that's been on my um, rock for this entire summer, I like literally haven't taken it off, uh, would be the Dalai Lama. So that's what I'm going with. Awesome. But I mean, in the in 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 black and lime green because those are the colors of Shigo from Kim Possible and I'm a nineties baby <laughs> and early two thousands cartoon watcher and that's my favorite villain. So that's what I have to offer. I love that. I'd love to see a tarpon caught on this. I think that uh any any sort of I just want to see what what people uh can do with this fly uh it's a great one great color pattern for sure and and Alaska is very much known for uh the Dalai Lama is a very popular and effective streamer great color choice Megan that was working really well for me the other weekend on some chum salmon um however I think my my go-to fly in Alaska and um I like to fish it because it works great almost any time of year for pretty much any species. Uh, it would be a, a, I call it the micro egg sucking leech. Um, so an egg sucking leech pattern. I like to fish it on a size 10 or size eight. Um, for the purposes of, of this contest, sounds like you could use any size. I'd like to see one on a, a big, <laughs> big old salt, saltwater hook or something like that. But uh, my favorite colors are, um, olive with a uh, orange head or white with an orange head. And I've had just tremendous luck pretty much anywhere I have gone in Alaska, any waters I'm fishing. It's one of the first ones I've tied on. Works great for trout, dollies, grayling. Uh, I've picked up some king salmon on it even. Uh, and interestingly enough, we had a um, invasion of goldfish in one of our local ponds here in Anchorage. Um, and so I got out there and was able to get some goldfish on it. So should should work well for uh, all the panfish anglers out there too. Oh, yeah. Y'all want to wager anything on a uh, biggest fish caught uh, with the flies, whoever, with this Instagram Instagram contest? Make a little, stack of no pebble? No pebble yeah. mine stickers? I'll put in some swag. Yeah, I got, some, I got a couple leftover koozies I can send you. Well, sweet, a little sweet in the sweet in the pot a little bit. Appreciate <laughs> it, Megan. Any, yeah, any we can rummage up some goodies and we can rummage up some goodies and I'll uh, I'll throw in a dozen hand tied flies as well. All right. Well, I love it. Um, y'all have any extra final thoughts before we wrap this thing up? I don't think uh, so. Well, I I guess. The one thing that I would add is, um, gosh, when I when I found out about the, the Five Rivers program, first thing I thought was, where was this when I was in college? I would have loved to participate in this. So 
to the to the listeners here who are either running Five Rivers programs at their college um, or are just interested or or somehow support the Five Rivers program, um, I would just like to, to to thank you all for the work that you do to to build these communities at your college. Uh, it's awesome to be able to connect people to the sport of fly fishing, uh, to build friendships and bonds on the river, and to share special places um, with others. So I guess thanks for the work y'all are doing. Thanks for having us on this podcast and keep up the good work. Well, thank you. It was, it was, I will, just sorry. I thought I didn't have anything to add and now I do, of course. Um, <laughs> I just also wanted to note that, um, to staff like national, we are here to support, um, in, in any way we can. So if you have questions, um, want to reach out to us about, whether campaign related things, if you are planning a trip to Alaska or, um, you know, want to learn a little bit more about how we got to our positions. Uh, I volunteer myself, but I would also wager that Eric's probably game too. Um, and if you uh, want to reach out to us, we're more than happy to spend some time chatting with you. Um, and I think that's one of the, the best parts about TU is that um, always looking out for our larger community and making sure we bring as many people into this, this work as possible. If it's, um, something you first see in your future. Okay, yeah. now it's done. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, just to add that, I'm always happy to uh, to talk with TU members or our supporters, um, Five River students for sure. Anything, whether it relates to some of the work we're doing up here, um, or just if you're thinking about Alaska, wanting to come, I'm always happy to to give suggestions on on what you should look at and put your time into so just saying hit me up anytime thank you guys uh for coming on i think that we'll definitely throw y'all's info in the blog post and um it was great talking i i learned a lot about pebble mine and i think that uh this is a great thing we'll have a great little follow-up blog and there's still a lot of work to be done Um, so thanks guys for coming on. Uh, it was awesome talking to y'all. Yeah. Thank you guys. It's been uh, cool to catch up with, uh, with other T staffers around the country and see, uh, what's happening in their neck of the woods. And, you know, Pebble Mine is obviously one of the biggest things, uh, that TU does. So thanks again for, uh, spearheading that initiative. Our pleasure. Yeah. Excited to watch this podcast grow as well. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Catch y'all later. We'll just be standing tall. I found out everyone.